0: Let's pray. Father, this is a weighty business that we are about right now. The building of the church of God comes essentially by the, the preaching of the Word of God. It's, it's been that way since the beginning and it has uniquely been Remembered to be that way in these last 499 years since the year 1517 and the Protestant Reformation that was sparked, uh, All Saints' Day that we celebrate soon. And Lord, I, I ask that you would come now in power and attend the proclamation of your word with the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit, who we learned about last week, Lord. He is the Spirit of Christ, and so as we focus on the church as the embodiment of the gospel, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words, your words, and drive them deep into the soil of our hearts this morning, and that you would stamp us um, irrevocably with the message that you have for us today, and that we would walk away changed knowing that we have met you through the preaching of your word. Build your church, I pray, Lord Jesus, through this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. This season, it has been our privilege to explore the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America. And this preaching series has been called Evangelical Convictions, a study of the EFCA statement of faith. Something that we've never done before uh, as a church and something that I suspect we may never do again. Um, We began our series with a persuasion that there are many Christian doctrines a believer can make it all the way to heaven without knowing. But the gospel is not one of those doctrines. On the contrary, every Christ follower must know the continuing priority of the gospel, the compelling promises of the gospel, and the converting power of the gospel. Furthermore, we agree as a church that we believe in in gospel-shaped doctrine because what we have is a gospel-shaped Bible. That Jesus Christ is the person behind every page of Holy Scripture. Every road in the Bible leads to Him. And that means that our church is radically committed to learning and loving and living the gospel of Jesus. We are radically committed to learning, loving, and living sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. That's a phrase that we've looked at before. We've drawn it from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. What, what is that? I mean, What does that mean? It means that the gospel, the message of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus, that message of the gospel, that message is intimately tied to all that we believe and all that we are, and all that we are seeking to do as a fellowship. God is the origin of the gospel. We've learned that the scriptures are the revelation of the gospel. Humanity is the recipient of the gospel. The person of Jesus is the manifestation of the gospel. The work of Jesus is the accomplishment of the gospel. And as we learned last Sunday through Pastor Seth's sermon the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the application of the gospel possible. And of all the scriptures we heard last Sunday, we had a wonderful discussion in our community group about the sermon and about all the scriptures that we heard, but the one that rang my bell the loudest was John sixteen fourteen, where Jesus says this about the Holy Spirit. He says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That fell on me with great weight as I, as I heard it. The Spirit takes what belongs to Jesus and declares it to us. Without the Holy Spirit, we don't have access to all that Christ has accomplished for us. He's the one who baptizes us into union with Christ. It's the Spirit that immerses us and thrusts us and plunges us into life in Jesus. He applies the gospel to us. So while it is imperative that we repent and believe the gospel, it is, we are fully responsible to turn from our sin and put our faith definitively in Jesus for the salvation of our soul. We must repent and believe the gospel. What we find is that when we do looking back, as the old hymn says, he was long beforehand with my soul. It's the Spirit who grants us repentance and even gives us the gift of faith in the first place. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the gospel to us, each of us individually, which brings us to our topic today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That's a statement about the church. Yes, God is the origin of the gospel, uh, scriptures are the revelation of the gospel, humanity is the recipient of the gospel, uh, the person of Christ is the manifestation of the gospel, the work of Christ is the accomplishment of that gospel, Holy Spirit is the applier of the gospel, but the church and the church alone is the embodiment of the gospel, us. What do we mean by Embodiment. We mean that the church is the representative of the gospel right now. We are the epitome of the gospel, or ought to be. We are the example of the gospel. To use the language of 21st century American pop culture, we might put it this way. The church is the avatar of the gospel. Here's the big idea today, and it is huge. It is absolutely huge. We believe that the gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. We believe that the gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. Now, we learned in Article 4 that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. We mention Israel in Article 4 because we want to root our faith in the historic people of God in the pages of the Old Testament. But we would be woefully Mistaken to say that the church in some way replaces Israel or fulfills the role of Israel. We do not. The church ain't Israel. And as we've been studying in this church, whether it's the book of Daniel or other studies that we've done in recent years, God has a plan for Israel and will circle back around to his covenant people in the last days. But now, in this church, we embody the gospel as a new community. This morning, we'll look at three reasons why we believe that to be so. And at this time, I'll invite you, if you haven't already, to find your sermon outline. Just open it up so you can see Article 7 in front of you. Our text this morning is Article 7 of the EFCA Statement of Faith. That's why I said we're doing this for a season, but we probably won't do this again in the life of this church. We're used to simply opening up the Bible and unfolding the Bible, but this time we're unfolding our Statement of Faith. Through Article 7 on the church, we believe that the gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. How does the church embody the gospel? Well, three ways. Number one, the true church embodies the gospel to God. The true church embodies the gospel to God. Would you look with me at the first two sentences of Article 7 of the Free Church Statement of Faith? We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head. So we believe the gospel is now embodied in the new community called The church, and the first reason we believe that is because we believe that according to those two sentences there, the church exists to embody the gospel to God, the true church. Article 7 speaks of all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone and Christ alone. I trust you see that. And I trust you hear in that the historic embrace of the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith in Christ alone. 499 years ago, tomorrow, we mark the celebration of Martin Luther's posting of his 95 Theses to the castle door at Wittenberg, sending shockwaves through the church and through this world for 500 years now almost. It was this action that God sovereignly used to kickstart the Protestant Reformation that continues to this day. It was Luther that started it, and so it would be. Criminal not to quote Luther here on this day and on this doctrine. Um, in Luther's lecture on Psalm 130, verse 4, which, by the way, is one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament, Psalm 130, verse 4 says, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Uh, Luther was unfolding that doctrine for his uh, church, and he says this in 1533. In connection with justification by faith, this is the sum of Christian doctrine. For when this article stands, justification by faith, when this article stands, the church also stands. When this article falls, the church falls also. And the Bible teaches this relentlessly justification by faith in Jesus Christ apart from works, apart from the works. Of the law. Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is peace with God? What's the ground of peace with God? justification by faith Galatians 2.16 proclaims we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law but because by works of the law no one will be justified and finally in Ephesians 2.8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let it be said in this church that justification, a right relationship with God, right standing in relation to God, is available to every person within the sound of my voice this morning by grace through faith in Christ alone. And there may be those of us, among us today, for whom this is really good news. Like, newspaper fresh on your doorstep, really good news right now. Perhaps you're with us today and you really like what you're hearing. You want in. You know that you are a sinner by nature and by choice. You, you know that that sin alienates you from God and you sense His displeasure over your life. You know even instinctively that you stand under God's just and holy punishment because of your sin. Maybe you'd agree with William Beveridge who wrote in 1829, see if this doesn't describe you this morning, I cannot pray, but I sin. I cannot hear a sermon, but I sin. Nay, I cannot so much as confess my sins, but my very confessions are still aggravations of them. My repentance needs to be repented of. My tears want washing, and the very washing of my tears still needs to be washed over again. If this is you, you're not alone. In fact, if you're a believer, that's how you began your walk with Christ. If this is you today, I invite you, sinner though you are, to throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ this Reformation Sunday. The gospel is good news, the gospel's not behave. The gospel is believe. Believe in Jesus who lived your life and died your death and was raised for you. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's who he came for. So come to Jesus this morning. Come to him now. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus definitively I invite you this morning to trust him for your justification. Have you? Are you? Will you? Today is the day of salvation. Today. Now, if you have been justified by God's grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, then you are a part of the true church. That's what our statement of faith says, because that's what the Bible teaches. Let's look at it again. We believe. That the true church comprises all who have been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. They are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ, of which he is the head. Notice that phrase. It's really important. The true church. The true church. What's the true church? Well, it's the church that none of us can see. It's the church invisible, yet real. It's a real membership role with real names that exists visible only to God right now. Actually, let me tweak that statement. It's a membership role currently only accessible to our triune God right now. That is, right now, He's the only one with eyes to see the church as it is. But one day, that membership role will go public. And it will go public in the resurrection. Romans 8, 19 says, For the whole creation waits for the eager, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Whole creation waits for that moment. And Romans 8.24 declares that for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Right now, God's, God's the only one with eyes for the true membership role of the true church. Our free church leadership states it well when they write it this way. We refer to this as the true church. For it is a community ultimately known only to God. For only God can know the depths of the human heart. Only he can perceive with absolute certainty whether the faith that is professed is truly believed. If it's, if it's saving, converting faith. That's exactly right. That's the true church. The church invisible, if you like. The church as God sees it. Second Timothy 2.19 boils this whole point down to seven words. You Ready? 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord knows. He's not confused. We can't fool Him. Bank on it. The Lord knows those who are His. And since the true church is the body of Christ, then the true church and the church alone, the church as God sees it, the true church is the church that embodies the gospel to God. We believe that the gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. The true church embodies the gospel to God. That brings us to our second point today. The local church, the local church embodies the gospel to the world. The local church embodies the gospel to the world. Now, if that statement didn't fall on you with power, I want to take a few minutes to help unfold that, why that should fall on you with power, especially if you profess to be a follower of Jesus and especially if you count yourself a member of this church or another church. Look with me at Article 7 in the Statement of Faith. The true church is manifest. That means visible. It's visible in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. Now, please make note of that word, should. It's very intentional. Again, our free church leaders serve us well as they note this. In saying that local church membership should rather than must be composed only of believers, we are simply recognizing that we do not have infallible knowledge of who is actually a member of the true church as God sees it. I so appreciate that statement. That should, should be there. Because this is not always obvious to us. In any visible role of any local church, there is sadly going to be a margin for error. It's just always going to be that way until Jesus returns. Now we try to minimize that margin for error all we can by training prospective members to make sure that they have a very solid grasp of the gospel and a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ, and that they understand our church covenant, they're supportive of our 2020 vision and so on. That helps, but it doesn't completely eliminate the margin for error. I wish it weren't that way. There's the local church, and then there's the true church. But notice the connection anyway between these two truths. The true church is the church invisible. It's the church known only to God. Remember, the Lord knows those who are his. The true church is the church as God sees it. Now the local church, the local church is the church visible, visible to all. It's the church as the world sees it. And just as the true church embodies the gospel to God, so too the local church embodies the gospel to the world. In Ephesians 3:10, Paul writes that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known." First Timothy 3:15 says that the Church of the Living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. How are we doing with that one? Right? Do you see how vital it is that we have a biblical vision of church membership? It couldn't be more important. Again, the free church statement of faith is terribly concrete in this point. The true church is manifest in local churches whose membership should be composed only of believers. You say, yeah, but where's church membership in the New Testament? And my answer is everywhere if you have eyes to see it. It's everywhere. And I don't mean that as hyperbole. I know I'm given to hyperbole, but I, I'm not trying to overstate the case. What I mean is that if we genuinely don't see church membership in the pages of the New Testament, we have to ask a more foundational question with all due respect. What Bible are we reading? One of the reasons that people routinely fail to see church membership in the New Testament is that they fail to see this simple and stunning truth. You ready? The church is its members. That's what the church is. It is its members got that phrase from Jonathan Lehman, church leader in Washington, D.C. In the New Testament, the church is its members. You say, but what about the language of membership? It just just doesn't sound biblical to me. It sounds more like you're trying to run a club or like a resort or something. Where's the language of membership in the New Testament? (laughs) To which I answer 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12, 14, 19, 20, 25, 26, 27. 10 Times the Apostle Paul drives home the importance of membership, not like a club or like a resort, but like what? A body. A body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are one body, so it is with Christ. For the body is not one, consist of one member, but many. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members but one body. The members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, that there should be no division in the body. The members ought to have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Is membership in the New Testament? Yes, it is. The true, visible-to-God church is manifest in local, visible-to-the-world churches. Do you see then how critical it is that we not only have a membership, but we have what we've developed over these last several years, which is a a covenant membership, to make this painstakingly clear? I know that some of you do. 32 of you see this, for sure, because I have 32 of your names on this little covenant here inside my Bible. Actually, 31. Shane, we need your signature, buddy, so come see me after... 32 crazy people that are bananas for Jesus and for one another. And so clearly and joyfully and solemnly committed to this gospel that you have reached hold to grasp onto one another and mutual accountability and love to be a part of this covenant. There are those of you that are not a part of this covenant, and that is one of the express purposes of this sermon series. If you are interested in a pathway into covenant membership, come and talk to me. Whether you are a member that hasn't signed the covenant or you're a regular attender or you're just beginning to take a look at our church, we want to talk to you about our covenant. Um, Take a look at the 2020 vision that's in Fellowship Hall that'll give you more information on it. But come and talk to me. Talk to Pastor Seth or to Andy, Roger, Matt, Terry, any of our elders. Church membership, listen to this, church membership is how the world knows who represents Jesus. When the world sees a Christian who professes faith in Christ, the world expects to see a person fully engaged in their church, or at least they ought to, attending weekly worship gatherings, participating in community group life, using their gifts in loving service, contributing financially to the church, obeying their leaders, seeking to hold them accountable for their leadership, engaging in evangelism. That's what the church is. And that's what the world expects to see, or at least they should expect. But what do they see more often than we might care to admit? You know what they see. They see sporadic attendance. They see consuming instead of contributing. They see a more autonomous lifestyle as opposed to an interdependent lifestyle, a world loving lifestyle, and a silent witness. How does that embody the gospel to the world? Could it ever? Uh, Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, writes this. Biblically, if we are Christians, we must be members of a church. This membership is not simply the record of a statement we once made or an affection toward a familiar place. It must be, membership must be the reflection of a living commitment or it is worthless Worse than being worthless, it is dangerous. Listen to the sentence. Uninvolved members confuse both the real members and non-Christians about what it means to be a Christian. I hope you heard that. If anything else, please do not confuse non-Christians about what it means to be a Christian. We, we don't need that sort of help in our mission. It's hard enough as it is, We believe that the gospel is now embodied in the new community called the church. That's a very weighty thing. It's an enormous responsibility because while the true church embodies the gospel to God, the local church, the visible church that everyone can see, all of us wearing the t-shirt here, that is the church that embodies the gospel to the world. It's huge. Third and final point today. The ordinances of the church embody the gospel to herself the ordinances of the church embody the gospel to herself final two sentences of article 7 would you follow along with me once more as i read the lord jesus mandated two ordinances baptism and the lord's supper which visibly and tangibly express the gospel though they are not the means of salvation. When celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. Now, without a doubt, um, any attempt to try and do justice to the whole topic of what we believe and practice about baptism in the Lord's Supper in a single point is to attempt the impossible. So, in one sense, I won't even try. Um, it would take an entire sermon series to say all that ought to be said about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we've done that in this church. If you were a part of us in the fall of 2012, late summer, fall of 2012, we were meeting down the road at Hilltop in the cafeteria. We studied baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, while there's no way we could sufficiently address all that we believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper, it doesn't mean there's nothing we could say here. Um, for starters, Our statement of faith describes the Lord's Supper and baptism as ordinances, not sacraments. Jesus Christ, it says, commanded, mandated to ordinances. So we think of baptism in the Lord's Supper as mandates. They are commands. They are edicts and decrees from King Jesus. That's weighty enough. We we stop short of the language of sacraments, although the, the, the word in principle, there's nothing wrong with it. It could be confusing. If the free church were to use sacramental language, it might confuse our vision of the sacraments or the ordinances with how the Roman Catholic Church approaches these matters. In fact, our statement of faith goes so far as to say that Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not the means of salvation. See that there? That's intentional. Because in the Roman Catholic Church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, along with five other sacraments, are in fact the means of salvation. That's how it works in the Catholic Church. And so the Free Church attempts to uh, show the difference here with the word ordinances. And the reason why is because the Bible doesn't teach that baptism and the Lord's Supper are the means of salvation. The Bible doesn't remotely teach that. Salvation, as we affirmed in our first point today, is by faith in Christ alone, period, full stop. The thief on the cross hadn't been baptized so far as we know. We'd have no record of him taking the bread or the cup alongside Jesus and yet what did Jesus say to him today you will be with me in paradise so baptism and the Lord's Supper are not the means of salvation but just because we don't regard them as the means of salvation doesn't mean we don't regard them as a precious means of grace and that's what they are to us alongside biblical preaching and teaching and biblical counseling and prayer and singing in the gathered assembly and giving of our financial resources and fellowship that occurs in this church, both in this building and in your community groups, baptism in the Lord's Supper are a primary means of grace for our souls. And we ought to regard them in the highest of esteem. Now, it's the culture of our church to preach and practice believer's baptism by immersion upon profession of faith. Um, We believe that if you've been born again, Uh, united by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, if you've been plunged into Jesus, that you ought to be plunged into water publicly to affirm that. Outward expression of the inward heart change. That's why we say in our statement of faith that baptism visibly and tangibly expresses the gospel. Romans teaches this. Romans 6, verses 3 to 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So baptism is a a picture, it's a visible picture of our union with Jesus Christ and his death going down into the water and his resurrection coming up out of the water. And of course, baptism is a tangible expression of the gospel. We use water so that it can be a a tactile way of reminding us that we have been cleansed through the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts through the gospel. And then, just in passing, regarding the Lord's Supper, the meal that we're going to celebrate next week that we speak of frequently in this church as we take it, this meal, the bread and the cup, that's a visible and tangible expression of the gospel. It's the way that we embody the gospel to ourselves Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 and 8, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. In our church, we widely regard the bread and the cup as symbols of the the broken body and the poured-out blood of Jesus. At least a memorial of our meal uh, the meal that Jesus took with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And we regard it as a further participation in our union with our Lord and one another. So we can look forward to preaching the gospel to one another as we take for the bread and take at the cup next week. Well, let's review. We believe that the gospel is now embodied in this new community called the church. The true church embodies the gospel to God The local church embodies the gospel to the world. And the ordinances of the church embodies the gospel to herself, to us. Next week, we have the distinct privilege of studying what is hands down my favorite article in the Free Church Statement of Faith. I've been waiting weeks for this, Article 8 on Christian Living. Not only is it my favorite article in our Statement of Faith, but it contains my favorite sentence in our Statement of Faith, and I will leave you hanging as to what that sentence is. But come back next week. I invite you, I in fact urge you to join us next Sunday, first Sunday of November, as we turn our eyes to what we're going to call the functional centrality of the gospel, what we believe about Christian living. We'll pick it up then. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are at work in your church, the true church throughout the world today. Lord, among the seven billion inhabitants of this planet, you know those who are yours. You know. You see in a way that we do not see, and your knowledge, your membership role is perfect and flawless, and we stand in awe and we are so grateful that, that you would have people like us to be members of that true church. Lord, we don't commend ourselves to you based on anything that is in us, quite the reverse. The only basis on which we could ever have a right relationship, a right membership in your church would be because of Jesus. We are impressed with Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your life and death and resurrection and soon return for us. I pray, Father, that as we embody the gospel to the world, that you would help us as a church to do due diligence. Thank you so much, Father, for the the way that you are building your visible church here among us. May we continue with all that we have to chase our 2020 vision and may our designs and covenant membership be pleasing to you as we seek to unfold more into that number in the days ahead. And Father, as we celebrate baptism in the Lord's Supper, we thank you too for these visible and tangible expressions of the gospel. God, help us to get the gospel right so that we are more inclined to get the gospel out because we want to see more people baptized in this church. We want to celebrate people's new birth routinely in this church. Would you cause a flood of new life to come into this fellowship through our deep desire to reach our neighbors and those that are far from you? And even next week, Lord, as we feast on the bread and the cup, these visible and tangible reminders of the gospel make us nourished. And may we be fortified by the meal that we will take. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this teaching. Thank you for our statement of faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.